Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this magnificent privilege to gather together as family, <laughs> excuse me, in the unity of the faith, to break bread on the very bread of life, the sustenance that is the word. Thank you for every provision that you've given us so that we are able to gather together as family this evening in this little church on a hill in Dighton. Thank you for revealing to us all of your love, not just the so-called blessing side of it, but also the tough side of it. And thank you for giving us the perseverance to pursue such things in depth and also to set our own lives straight, to be set in the mirror uh, and if we're in charge of anyone else in our lives that we might guide them appropriately. Thank you for those things and the opportunity to bring glory to you in those ways. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part six of when subjectivity becomes the culturally <coughs> excuse me, accepted norm, uh, we need to wrap up our side study. This is a side study, believe it or not. Remember, we're still on why the apostles so encouraging. Uh, by grace, they were prepared. But this was on the coattails of, with God, all things are possible. Do you remember that? We had... Um, so we departed with, all, with God, all things are possible. That was a two-part series. And then this one's turned into a six-part series titled, When Subjectivity Becomes a Culturally Accepted Norm. These are two tremendously edifying sets of lessons, as you know. So let's, do, um, let's close up shop now uh, so we can make our way back to why uh, the apostle is so encouraging. Um, so many things that are proving from the Spirit, how very much our lives need to fit in with Holy Scripture, not the other way around. Uh, as I was sort of thinking about this this morning, um, these lessons, you know, uh, with God all things are possible, uh, when subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm. What the Spirit's saying, sort of the undercurrent of it all, is that we are not to fit Holy Scripture into our lives, if that makes sense. We are to fit our lives into Holy Scripture. And so many people make that error. They say, well, you know, I go to church, and well, I do read my Bible, kind of, and, you know, I like it enough that, you know, I do those things, but I'm really trying to fit, I'm trying to shoehorn Holy, just put this in perspective, Holy Scripture into my little flawed life. It's awful. We are supposed to be thinking this way. We are fitting our lives into Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture predates all of us. The Word was. It's always been. And so we got to get our arms or our heads around this kind of a thing. Uh, for example, from Sunday's lesson, go to 2 Timothy 1.7. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.7. This is from Sunday. <clears throat> Second Timothy 1, 
verse 7. This was um, a good portion of Sunday's message, at least on the highlight reel, worth reiterating this evening. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And those three words are going to be woven into this evening's message, as you'll see. But Paul says, in contrast, first, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. And I gave you the Greek word from uh, Delia up here on the board, refers to a cowardly, shameful fear caused by a weak, selfish character. You know, there's that old saying, if you're living for others, there's not enough time to worry about yourself. And that's what he's conveying, in part at least. That's what timidity is. If you're worried about self-preservation, you will be timid. You will be cowardly. You will be uh, weak and selfish in character. It's even sometimes translated fear. And in context in uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, it's the opposite. And that's why he draws out this contrast. He says, we're not given this thing. We're given these things. We're not given a spirit of timidity. We're given, uh, you know, power, love, discipline. And so it's the opposite of power, love, and discipline. And um, where do we get these tremendous gifts, power, love, and discipline, if we're to think about these three things, power, love, and discipline, the opposite of timidity? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. Go to Ephesians 3.14. Ephesians 3.14. It's interesting because we're going to spend... Uh, the vast majority of our time this evening in the epistles that Paul wrote um, because he did really weave these concepts into his letters. Love, power, discipline. Ephesians 3.14. So we've got a few uh, sweeping type passages we're going to cover this evening. And all the Spirit wants you to do is, since this is the last uh, part of this series, is think back on the previous five parts and think about what the Spirit's been saying at a high level even. And we're not to be timid. We're to be loving, powerful, and disciplined. Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. There's humility. You know, all of this starts with humility, as I've been teaching for years now. That is the key to the spiritual life, humility. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, so here we go, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So there's our power source, if you would. Be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So we're not supposed to be timid. We're supposed to have power. Where do we get this power from? God the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, and you see that this is all by grace. Grace precedes everything. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. There's our love. I told you these things are going to be woven into our lesson. Uh, Paul never departed from these key elements. Verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Well, that takes discipline. Do you see it? So already we have power, love, and discipline. And we're still going. Verse 19, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And you might think of all three. 
of those being uh, characterized there, the fullness of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That sort of harkens back to where we just were. We're not supposed to be timid. We're supposed to have power, love, and discipline, but we can't do any of these things without him. That's what it just said. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, to his own glory. It's always grace to God's glory. As soon as we get involved, you know, we start chest beating and, oh, well, I'm going to be powerful and loving and disciplined. Uh, that's us getting in the way. So we have this amazing power, this love, this discipline. Now, what do we do with it to bring glory to God? Go to 1 Thessalonians 1.5. It's a very simple formula, my friends, honestly. A very simple formula. I've said this and I'll say this assumably until, or presumably until I go to my grave that, you know, the entire New Testament is really either about proclaiming the gospel or defending it. It's always one of those two things. So guess what we're supposed to do with power, love, and discipline? What do you think we're supposed to do? There's a reason why we call it the Great Commission. There's a reason why you were left here. It wasn't just to come to church and pretend to be holy. This is a training ground, nothing more. This is, a this is where you get trained to go out. So many uh, churches have that boxed in. I don't, I don't know why. I know why, but um, it's really to the detriment of those um, in that situation. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, for our what? Gospel. There it is. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That's going to come up a little bit later. Others. Power, love, discipline, others. These are the themes that wrap themselves around the Great Commission itself. Power, love, discipline, others. And if you read Paul's epistles, if you were able to read them all in one night, which you could do, um, you'd see this, these themes wrapped around the gospel. It's always the gospel. He's either proclaiming it or defending it. And it's always wrapped in these elements. To answer the question, what are we supposed to do with this power we are given through the Spirit, the answer is spread the gospel. Honestly, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to spread the gospel. It's wonderful that you made it here. I mean, look at all the sick people. Honest to goodness, it's wonderful to see your faces, especially you, Margie. Right? It's wonderful to see everybody. Yes. Oh, she's not even a member of the congregation. And you say, you don't say that to us. See how they are, Margie? They're jealous. <laughs> it's wonderful to see you, honestly. And that is by the grace of God. Amen? But this is not it. This is what I've been trying to tell you. This is not it. If I wanted to be your hero, I'd say, this is it. Come to church, look at me, this is awesome. I'm just, you know, I, I, then I become a demigod. I don't want to be a demigod. I'm trying to train you up for that. Love, power, discipline, others. So what are we supposed to do with all this power and this love and this discipline? We're supposed to direct it to others by spreading the gospel. You see, a selfish person doesn't understand this. 
And if you're new to the, you know, if you're new to this, then don't worry about it. If you don't, if this doesn't make full sense yet, don't worry about it. But if you've been at this for a long time and you're still this person, this selfish person, uh, listen up. A selfish person doesn't understand these things. They think simply going to church to get more for themselves is the end of the line. But for a person who understands that living for others isn't a punchline in the Bible, they know that spreading the gospel is the greatest commission of all. I'm not saying there aren't things that you do other than spreading the gospel, but all of it is for the sake of the gospel. Whether Even if you're cleaning the toilets, you're making this possible, the equipping of the saints, right? Ephesians 4. You're making this possible so that others can go out. Not everybody's you know, necessarily on the front lines. Anne's going out in the front line on the 29th, right? She's going to go right in the mix of it in a park with homeless people and hand out grace gift bags, right? That's on the front line, but she's not going to sustain out there forever. She has to come back. It's probably not even your comfort zone, really, frankly, right? She's like, no, it's not. God's doing this to me, right? I get it. I get it. But that's the whole point is, you know, we go out, we come back. We go out, we come back. The idea is that we go out. So that's the answer to our question. It's really to live for others spreading the gospel. That's why we call it the greatest commission. To put this concept into practical terms, it means that at the pinnacle of our service to the Lord, we have a life akin to that which Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 4, for instance. Go to 2 Corinthians 4.1. I told you we're going to sweep across some major passages here. I don't have time to spend too much or spend too much time on these things, but You'll get the point by the end of the night what the Spirit's saying. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. So we should have this same sort of attitude that Paul wrote about. 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, <clears throat> as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we do appeal to others this way, in the sight of God, to others' conscience even. Remember, that's where the Holy Spirit is going to begin uh, to convict the person as well. Verse 3 and even if our gospel, again, the key to his ministry, to ours too, is the gospel, even if the, our ministry, the very centerpiece of our ministry is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. I was talking to uh, Pastor Farley yesterday morning and uh, we were talking about, it always upsets me a little bit. I'm not throwing stones, but it upsets me that um, there's a lot of good ministers out there that if you just go to their website, it's a huge picture of their face. And I'm saying to myself, what is this, what's going on? Why do we, what, you might as well put it on a 40 or 50 foot billboard on Route 44. What's going on? Who are we preaching? Are we preaching ourselves? Are we elevating ourselves? Or are we elevating Jesus Christ as Lord? What are we doing? 
And we see that in Christendom as well. Individuals that are elevating them so much that literally their ministry is literally associated with their face instead of Christ. Anyways, I digress, but this look at verse 5. I mean, what are they reading then? We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. This, these ministries aren't... Your ministry out there isn't about you. Look, when you, when you present the gospel, it's one thing to relate to someone. That's cool. You might get a seat at the table, right? And say, I have empathy for you. I can be there. But don't make it about you. Don't make it about you. You're never going to win that. You have to make it about the gospel. Your job is to present the word of God, the gospel. Not, you know, look how wonderful I am because I'm a Christian. So we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure. You know what that treasure is? It's called the gospel. We have this treasure, the gospel, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, and not of ourselves. Now remember, power, love, discipline, for these are our driving forces so that we press on even in the face of adversity, which Paul addresses now. Look at verse 8, 4, 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. There's others. Love, power, discipline, others. For all these things, in other words, this ministry, this ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ is all for you. It's all for others. This is what he's basically saying. This is what we want to have. We want, don't you want purpose in your life? Honestly. Don't you want purpose other than some job or than, I hate to be, you know, crude, you know, some, some other person, even like a relationship even. Shouldn't your relationship with Christ be the greatest thing of all? And what did he say? It's better to live for others. Greater love is no one than this. Then he laid down his life for others, right? For all things are for your sakes, others, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." What an incredible pep talk, huh? I mean, you could just read that on your own sometime and be jazzed up about it. I am. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's so much sort of encapsulated in there. Again, this whole point with studying, go back to 2 Timothy 1.7. 
This whole point we're studying is, was instigated by 2 Timothy 1.7. <clears throat> I want to finish up this passage so you can see it twice since Sunday. But all of that, those passages we just read, were really to amplify this one verse in verse 7, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, and that's the point on the board, but of power and love and discipline. And it's okay for you to think about timidity as something selfish even. Something selfish even. And I don't mean necessarily, um, quote-unquote, on purpose. A lot of self-preservation and timidity and selfishness are conjoined, if you would, right? Self-preservation, that's what selfishness, that's where it's rooted, right? Uh, it's a weakness, if you would. But that's the antithesis of power and love and discipline that we just saw Paul write about in several different ways. So let's finish this passage as well, where we see Paul's initial sentiment carried out in greater detail. So verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, that's the gospel again, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. This is why you're here. I alluded to this at the beginning of class. This is why you're left here after salvation to spread the gospel, to live for others. And it doesn't just mean coming to church. It's wonderful you're here, but that's not his purpose for you. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And this is where it gets sort of rubber hits the road for us. And this is this series that we've been on. Uh, we're supposed to be rejecting the types of things that are going on in our own society. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We shouldn't back down from the truth of the universe. So he says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Do you suffer because you're not ashamed of the gospel? Is everything in your life somehow or another oriented or in support of the gospel? I mean, that's a hard one. Why not? Maybe you're ashamed of it. Shame in the sense that you're timid about it. You're selfish about it. In the sense that you don't want to pronounce who you are in Christ to your friends, because you might lose them. Or at work, because as Scott almost taught, uh, you might lose money even. I mean, you don't think that happens? You don't think that prejudice happens? Are you kidding? You stand up for Christ? I mean, I've, I've, I, I, I know I've had it, but Todd, you probably come across it all the time, right? That it's going to happen, and you have to say, okay. If that's God's will, if I have to stand up for the gospel and I lose a promotion or I lose a job or something like that, so be it. God must have something better in store for me. It's a tough one to swallow in America. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. 
<clears throat> we, should also we should all recite, let's face it, 2 Timothy 1.12, whenever someone attacks us. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. You want to attack me because I believe this or that? Fine, go ahead. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I've given my life to him. You remember, that's the beginning of salvation. Do you remember? You, you have to say, I'm yours. Don't just say his little prayer. I am yours. I'm handing my life over to you. My life is, is stinky. I almost said a worse word, but I know it's offensive. Right? My life is no good. Born in sin, I know I'm depraved. Here, save me. I'm not ashamed of that. Why in the world would I be ashamed of that? I just gave my whole life over to the Lord. That's why we call him Lord and Savior, not just Savior. He's my Lord. Gave him my life. Am I going to be ashamed of that now? So we should all recite that, verse 12 there, uh, whenever we're under attack. Verse 13, therefore, he says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure, there it is again, the gospel, which has been entrusted to you. This thing that you have, this gospel, is the greatest gift of all. It saved you. It becomes you. Does that make sense? If you've read any of Paul, he says, all I want to know is Christ and him crucified. The gospel became him. He became the gospel. Does that make sense? I mean, Jesus Christ was the manifestation of the gospel. He was the good news. And we're all in Christ. And the idea is that we treasure this thing so much so that it becomes us. That makes sense. If you recall, all of that good labor was instigated, instigated on Sunday by Ephesians 4.15. Go to Ephesians 4.15. So we're kind of backed in. Ephesians 4.15. I'm covering a lot of ground, I know, but these are sort of big picture, rapper type statements that I'm making. If you recall, all of that good labor was instigated by this verse, Ephesians 4.15. But speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. But we focused on that idea of speaking the truth in love. It's not unloving to um, contradict what societal norms exist in our, in our country, even. It's not unloving. As a matter of fact, it takes more love to stand up for truth, something that exists for the sake of freedom. It takes more love to do that than to just go along with the crowd. And so this was the crux of our lessons as of late. When subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm, we are not to accept these things. Societal norms can be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm which has supplanted godliness. Therefore, instability becomes the accepted norm, which is that sort of slippery topic. Um, a norm is usually a stationary object, at least conceptually. But what the Spirit was saying is that instability becomes the norm. 
I like to say it's dysfunction junction, right? Your norm, what you're, what's normal to you is chaos. On Sunday, I gave you an analogy involving a whole, quote, world of people living on a walled-in trampoline. I apologize about the insufficiency of the analogy, but it was drifting around on the giant ocean called the universe. And those who lived on the trampoline perceived movement relative to their own limited viewpoint. In other words, they were just on a trampoline. They couldn't see anything else but was on the trampoline floor. And so if one person was moving this fast, the other person said, well, they're moving that fast. But relative to God's immutable island, in other words, stationary island in the middle of that ocean, they could be floating around anywhere. So even though someone's walking two miles an hour from here to there on the trampoline, from God's perspective, they could be moving 100 miles an hour away from him. It's all about perspective, you see. And that's what I tried to impart to you on Sunday. It's all a relative statement. Perspective is everything because everything is relative to what you think is light. If you think dark, something dark is light, the people on a trampoline were, um, how would you say, um, in the dark, essentially. They thought that that was the world, that was the divine viewpoint, but it wasn't. How great is your darkness when you think you're in the light? So perspective is everything because everything is relative to what you think is light. If your, quote, world is limited, your perception of movement is relegated to that world only. However, God abides in his real world where your movement is relative to him. If you lack divine viewpoint, you lack stability in your life up here on the board. While the world thinks it's stable in its ways, it's actually accelerating away from God. See, when you're on the little trampoline, you might take a baby step and go, big deal, it's just a baby step. I know God's over there, but it's just a little baby step. Yeah, but the entire trampoline is drifting away from God. The entire society is accelerating away from God. That's the bigger problem. Not how, how you know naughty you've been relative to the rest of the world. Well, at least I'm not sleeping around. Big deal. What else are you doing? Anything you're doing in that direction is accelerating away from God. Do you understand what I'm saying? You have to look at it from God's perspective, not your little world, not what's acceptable to this world. This world is messed up. Seriously, this world is really messed up. And what people are accepting as normal is ridiculous. It's unbelievable. I'm so glad I don't have daughters. While the world thinks it's... Sta- oh, sorry, Andrea. Andrea married in. She's like, oh, I take offense. Everybody's taking offense. Ever since I said that, Margie. See how they are? While the world thinks it's stable in its ways, it's actually accelerating away from God, making it unstable. It cannot understand its own darkness because of its limited perspective. And what have I been teaching now for years? Perspective is everything. If there's one thing I can maybe possibly give you as a shepherd is perspective. That's about the best I can do. I can't, I can't improve this. I can't improve the content, right? So what can I give you? I say, well, you know, look at it from this way then. And look at it this way. And look at it this way. That was supposed to be funny, but whatever. You guys are duds. <laughs> this is all the Spirit's been trying to give us. Perspective. That's all he's been saying. 
It's the same basic exercise, think about it, that Jesus had to go through when he trained up his first disciples, the apostles. It's the same basic. They had one perspective, and it was heavily skewed by uh, Judaism at the time. He had to give them another perspective, the right one, the one that set them free. Only now he's using an anointed under-shepherd to do his good work in you all. But in the end, his spirit simply wants to impart grace and truth into your souls. And when you have those things, you'll have that, let's call it that fighting spirit that we read so often about in Scripture. That, not timidity, that fighting spirit, power, love, discipline. Isn't that what you would expect out of a soldier? Power, love, and discipline? You know, love of country, working out, discipline. Right? That's, geez, I even did that, and everybody's like, stone face. I'm done. I'm done. What'd you guys do? What'd you do before you got here? <laughs> when you have those things, you'll have a, that fighting spirit that we read so often about in Scripture. Don't you want that? Don't you want to get out of bed seriously and be a real soldier for Christ? Don't you want to get out of bed and have, a, have, like, uh, have that like, uh, purpose? Don't you? I do. I just love the attitude that Paul instilled in Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy 6, 7. 1 Timothy 6, 7. That's what he was trying to do. Paul was as much of a cheerleader as anything. 1 Timothy 6, 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Well, that's a freedom principle right there, isn't it? We didn't bring anything in, and we can't take anything out. So what are we clinging to? That's a freedom principle. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. How many Americans can say that? Seriously. Well, let's talk about this food thing, because I really like steak and wine. So if it's not steak and wine, all right, if it's steak and wine, I'm good. And covering, well, i got to have my new Jordache jeans. Do they even make those anymore? <laughs> hey, stop. Even Cheryl's jumping in. She's like, oh, my God. Now you know why we're not laughing. We're laughing at you. Maybe I did that on purpose. Maybe I know Jordache jeans aren't in anymore. Maybe I know they're lean. Maybe I know they're tough skins. Right? Everybody's got these standards. Where do you get the honest to goodness? Ask yourself. I'm being silly, but ask yourselves. Food and covering. What's the first thing that comes to mind? I bet you have nice, good food and good co- food and covering in your, on your mind. You know where that came from? America. That didn't come from the word. You know, the, the, you know, these nice meals and they're all these, you know, with the snack at the end, with the little bubble wrap around it and, the, you know, the little sauce you pour on at the end. That's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. He says, I'll sustain you. That should be enough. You're not going to die from the elements. That should be enough. But that's not what we think about, do we? We read verse 8 as Americans. We think food American style covering American style. Is that biblical? No, it's not. And then yet we're not even content with what we have. And it's way above the standard of God. You didn't come in with those things, and you're not going to leave with those things, so what are you doing? 
That's what he's saying. So get your, per your perspective straight, hence the point on the board. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare in many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Ruin. That's not like, oh, you're going to have a little pain. Ruin and destruction. You want to follow that pathway? Guess what? That's the, very, you're going to plunge into ruin and destruction. I didn't say that. That's the word of God. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is pretty strong language. Pierce themselves. It's like self-inflicted wounds. But flee from these things, you man of God. Flee, run away from them. And pursue right. It's hard because, you see, it's hard when America is the trampoline. It's hard to flee from them when all the ideals that, the, that our society holds up is ungodly. It is literally based on idolatry, the love of money, all related. It's really hard to do that thing because you, you run over there and there it is again. And then you run over there and there it is again. And, you run, and you're saying, well, where, where do I run? Well, you run to this. You ready? You run for this. Stop running to your buddies, your friends, your family, all these ungodly people that you hang around with. Stop pursuing horrible dreams. Stop prioritizing all the wrong things. You're just piercing yourselves. You're setting yourself up for many griefs, possibly ruin and destruction. So he says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And do not dismiss this. If I see you dismissing this, I'm going to get angry. Do not dismiss this. Some of you, I can already tell in your faces, you're dismissing what the Spirit's trying to say to you. Oh, this, doesn't, this doesn't count for me. It does count for you. That's the whole point. It very much counts for you. Anyways, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Sounds like power, love, and discipline again to me. So just reflecting, this kind of fight when it's present in this world, and this is you know, tonight's message title, we're literally light and darkness. We unsettle people. This kind of fight in us is going to unsettle those still functioning as citizens of this world, and that some of them might be you. Maybe tonight's message is a little bit offensive to you. I don't know. Maybe you are one of the idiots that's dismissing it as if there's an option. Nonetheless, here's been our encouragement from the Spirit. Stand firm, act like men. We shouldn't tolerate hatred towards godliness, act as if there's truth to it all. Love isn't weak, nor should it stand down in the face of animosity towards Christ. It's not hate to call someone a murderer, for example, if they murder someone, whether it's an unborn child or an adult. If that fact or the facts are offensive, too bad. 
And I use the Murda one because he wants me to use that again because it's one of the ones that um, our society has laws for. In other words, it's legal to kill an unborn child. Now, you have to ask yourself, how did that ever happen in our country? How did our country ever come, arrive at the fact that it's okay to kill an unborn child? How did we ever arrive there? And I'm not trying to be condemning to anybody who's been down this road before. That's not the point. The point is, that's what's upon us as citizens of this country of ours even of this society the norm even we had a the last president celebrated roe versus wade celebrated it which legalized the killing of babies i mean that's unbelievable how do we get there that's the question and that's what's important so for the sake of gravity here's a little more on this abortion issue and i'm I don't apologize for it being uncomfortable, but I know it's not the most comfortable topic in the world, but so be it. Maybe that's what the Spirit wants to use. According to the Guttmacher Institute, nearly half, 45% of all pregnancies among U.S. women, and this is an old stat, in 2011 were unintended. And about 4 in 10 of these were terminated by abortion. 4 out of 10. Just think about that. Four out of ten, approximately just under a million abortions were performed in 2014. That's 926,200 murders. And nobody got prosecuted. How did we end up in this situation where that's legal? Where nobody's, like, nobody's up in arms anymore about it? A million now, if that's offensive language to you, then I guess too bad. I'm only using language the Bible condones. The Bible says that if you kill a human being, minus wartime conditions, of course, then you're a murderer. It's that simple. Now, I promised um, one last note on this, that Satan and his fledgling attorneys, uh, these social justice warriors, they use this thing all the time when they get pinned into the corner. So we're going we're gonna to spend the rest of this evening just thinking a little bit like Satan. Just thinking a little bit like these people in our own society who are steering the trampoline, who, ha who are molding the societal norms in our country, who are being elected into positions of power who are writing legislation to ensure such things as legalized murder uh, happen. And whenever someone like us approaches them with even logic, not even, not even biblical logic even, just logic, they do what this little trick that Satan tried on Jesus in Matthew 4, for starters, context switching. Because context is everything. As gruesome, so let's develop this a little bit. As gruesome as this topic is, let's stick with abortion since it's fresh in our minds. According to OperationRescue.org, women give an average of 3.7 reasons why they are seeking an abortion, including the following up here on the board. So these are just directly off 
this website, Reasons Women Give for Abortion. 21% say inadequate finances, 21% not ready for responsibility, 16% woman's life would be changed too much, 12% problems with relationships unmarried, 11% too young and or immature, 8% children are grown, she has all she wants, 3% baby has possible health problems, less than 1% pregnancy caused by rape and incest, and then 4% others. Okay? So context switching. Here's a perfect example. Have you ever noticed that whenever a pro-abortion advocate argues their case, they most often resort to the rape and incest case? You ever notice that? Well, what about rape and incest? Um, okay, so just stop for a second. Why would an otherwise healthy woman who's never been raped try to justify her own abortion by using a case that has nothing to do with her? Why? Why would she try to justify her own abortion by using a case that has nothing to do with her, which actually represents less than 1% of all abortion cases? 99-point-something percent have nothing to do with that case. So why are you using that case? So just reflect for a moment. Placing Holy Scripture in the, in the murder language, let's say, away for a moment. Why would such a person use a case that doesn't in any way represent the abortion issue at large? Why? Because they don't want to come off as what God is telling them that they truly are, murderers. So they use some corner case to justify their own ridiculousness. In other words, if you want to talk about abortion in the case of rape and incest, then let's do that. But in the 99 point something percent of cases, this is not the context. If you want to have a discussion about aborting your baby, then let's talk about the context of your situation. Not some corner case that has nothing to do with you. As I've taught you in the past, context is what? Key. Do you want to talk about this or don't you? You want to try to justify 99 point something percent of abortions by some corner case? That's not contextual. That's called context, context switching. It turns out that this holds true as a general tenet in life that context is key, regardless even of spiritual application. Scuzzy attorney types are always mincing words like their father, the devil. Case in point, if you observe the statistics on the board, what you see is women who simply don't want the baby. That's what it comes down to. That the vast majority, 99%, unless the 4% represents something else, somewhere in the high 90%, what it really is, if we're going to call a spade a spade, is the women don't want the baby. That's what it comes down to. Why? Because you can't have that food and that covering that you want? That's what it comes down to? Pretty much. You can't have the American dream? can't finish college? Well, you should have thought about that before you made the mistake, before you sinned in the first place. It's not the baby's fault that you sinned. You don't get to kill somebody because you sinned. Last time I checked, that's a punt of responsibility, is it not? 
in the worst way? Of course it is. So there was these women don't want the baby. What's that got to do with the less than 1% rape and incest cases? You know what? Absolutely nothing. The other thing we never see in this list is mention of the baby's right to life. Why is that not up there? Like, why is that not even a consideration? Why is that, why is that never talked about? That's where folks like you and I come into the picture because our Bibles tell us that babies in the womb are indeed human beings made by the hand of God himself, conceived in the womb. Children, last time I checked, and don't get, don't get crazy with these weird goat genetic experiments, children are not conceived outside the womb. As a vast general rule, is that fair to say? Okay. God forms them, you ready? In the womb. Some argue, well, they're not viable because they are dependent on the umbilical cord for life support. Well, if that's your argument, then be prepared. You ready? Be prepared to tell a bunch of very ill and or very old people they are no longer viable because they're on life support. And, by the way, because they're on life support, at our whim, because they're burdening us, burdening us, we can kill them. Well, you're a burden now. I don't want you, so I get to kill you. Let's pass some laws on that. What's, why, don't, why, aren't we at, why aren't we passing laws on that stuff? You don't think that's where this is going? Honestly, you don't think we're any, this, that's the direction that this, this kind of thing goes in? Where does it stop? If, you're, if you can legalize killing people because they're a burden, why not? I mean, overpopulation, right? Anybody ever see The Secret of Soylent Green? It's a movie, no? They kill the old people when they get to a certain age? Yeah. What, where, no, I'm serious. What happens when there's too many people and we haven't been raptured yet, let's say? Can we kill these people because they're a burden? Why is everybody all itchy-twitchy in here? I'm serious. This is the world you live in. Maybe it's uncomfortable. Good. Maybe you haven't thought about it. Shame on you. Maybe you're a coward. Maybe you're timid. Shame on you. At the end of the day, even contextually-oriented conversations with these social justice warriors aren't carried out with any integrity. But as we know, evil begets evil, evil up here on the board. Context switching, evil begets evil. If a person is unwilling to defend their position within the context of it, they lack integrity, which is, guess what? Evil. From that decision point on, no argument is wholly viable. Your starting point was evil. You have to go back to square one to start at something intrinsically good, which is to say... The baby has rights. It's a baby. So this whole abortion thing is one of many issues that have run amok in our beloved America. There's also marriage issues. Think of same sex, etc. Homosexuality, transgenderism, and the whopper of all, feminism. So what I'm saying, and I'm speaking on behalf of our Lord, as an anointed under-shepherd, 
Let's not bow down to the pressures of this world. Let's not accept the norms. Amen? Amen. We know the truth. And if that puts us in the increasing minority, then so be it. Then so be it. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say we'll be the majority vote. If you read the book of Acts even, you actually realize that just the opposite is most often true. Let's read one more passage before closing. <clears throat> Go to 2 Timothy 2, 1. Second Timothy 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's power again. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What do you think I'm doing? You think this is easy? You try looking at your mugs. I'm serious. Some of you are like, man, I should have stayed home with the rest of the people. But look, anyways, verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You're in, you're, whether you like it or not, you are enlisted into Christ's army. And please, please, after a lesson like tonight, do not become condemned. Don't walk away. Even if you were somebody who had an abortion, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not here to judge anybody. That's not the point of any of this. The point is that we aren't supposed to accept things like legalized murder in our society and, and then celebrate it at the very highest office in the country. And people are like, yay, what do we, what, seriously? So if you stand up for truth, you're going to suffer. So Paul says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Guess what that points to? Societal norms. So that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Not the world's rules. Discipline in view to God's rules, to his commandments. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. For others, in other words. That's what he's saying again. Do you see it? Power, discipline, love. Others. For this reason I endure all the things... All things for the sake of those who are chosen. In other words, for others. I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing it for you all. I can say the same thing. So that they may also so that also that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Remember what I, how I started off? All of this is for what? The gospel. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remember them 
excuse me, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's just such a gross thing, isn't it? Their talk will spread like gangrene, worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, because remember, evil begets evil, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Hold on a second. Verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts. I, oh, that was, that's a lot of fun thinking about that. Um, flee from youthful lusts. Let me say this in very brief order. Um, especially you single people. You will not last in the same room for very long with a member of the opposite sex. If there's even one iota of any bit of attraction without sinning. That's a fact. And this is why Paul says, flee. Don't wrestle with it. I can overcome it. I'm so strong. I swear it'll never happen again. You won't. So Paul says, run away. Don't get in that situation. And if you're married, sometimes it happens then too. That's how adultery happens. Don't get in the situation in the first place. Oh, I didn't know. It just happened. What do you think you are? More powerful than David? No, seriously. Get out of the situation. It says flee. Stop pretending that you're strong enough to overcome what the Bible says straight up. You cannot. That's why I wrote that little piece on American dating being an abomination. It truly is. You're not going to end up in the same room, even, with somebody you're even remotely attracted to without having some kind of a thought, which is evil, which is sin, which means the whole situation you should have avoided. In other words, it's not from God. And remember, God doesn't tempt you. So says the Bible. So flee! Anyways, my little tirade. Verse 22 Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. A lot of us Americans, that's, that describes most Americans, may come to their senses, escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I would say that's American society today. 
most Americans are completely held captive to do his will. Everything in society, let's face it, and I'll end here. Does anything in the United States, think about the shining, you know, if we're to, if we're to um, characterize on a global scale, America, do you think the gospel blasts out? Or do you think Michael Jordan and idolatry this and Lexuses and rap music and uh, music in general, all these ridiculous idolatrous things, that's what, we exp that's what we stand for. And don't get me wrong, I love my country for whatever it's worth. I mean, my citizenship's in heaven, but you know what I'm saying. Let's just call a spade a spade. America is a sewer pipe that stands for things that are actually literally not godly at all. They're actually ungodly. And most of the citizens of America are completely held captive in the snares of the devil by everything that's approved, including legalized murder, among a whole host of other things. Amen? Tough lessons, huh? But they're really not. Just shake a little bit. Think about what the Spirit said. The only reason they're tough is because you might be still clinging. Or maybe just the delivery is tough. Great. Great. That's how he wants me to deliver it. That's how I'm going to deliver it. Okay? But take what the Spirit's saying to you. Take it very personally. Don't shake it off. Take it very personally. Because that's exactly why you're here tonight personally. It wasn't for this person over here. wasn't the one you nudged during class. It was you. Every single one of you. Amen? All right, it's Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to gather together as family to partake of the very bread of life. Thank you for being real with us always, for shaking us up. Uh, we ask for the Spirit's guidance as we take all these things that we've learned, Father, to convict us and continue to convict us of these things so that we might be set free. May we have the tenacity to share such things with others in power and love and discipline. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.